Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that, much like the coronavirus, has already gone on much longer than is comfortable, but shows no signs of ending for quite some time. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and as Chancellor of the Duchy, an artist's interpretation of what COVID-19 would look like if it were an asshole, Michael Gove, says that he wishes he could predict when it would end. It's nice to hear him finally cotton on to what the public thinks every time he starts talking. Yes, according to the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, it could be three to six months before the country is back to normal, which makes me wonder just what the coronavirus will do that will somehow erase the last ten years. According to Prime Minister and visual diagram of the methane cycle, Boris Johnson, things will get worse before they get any better, something that should have been not only his election campaign slogan, but that of his parties for quite some time. He's had to say that, though, not only because death and infection rates continue to increase, but also because Johnson is currently self-isolating after being tested positive for COVID-19 symptoms. But still being positive about something is the way to get through it, according to Boris, right? I'm sure that by being optimistic about it all, he'll be okay in no time. I'm not saying this is how he caught it, but it was only days before that the Prime Minister was boasting about how the government were putting an arm around every worker, something that seems a lot less wise now. Still, at least Johnson is used to self-isolation and he can probably cope with hiding indoors and not making any public appearances by pretending it's election time again. The health secretary and Woody from Toy Story, but you know, shit, Matt Hancock, is also self-isolating, having been told by doctors that he has coronavirus symptoms. And this shows just how dramatic the changes caused by the pandemic really are, as that must be the first time Hancock has successfully listened to advice from medical experts. The PM and Health Secretary aren't the only ones either, as Chief Medical Officer and only just woken up owl Chris Whitty was also tested positive, as was Johnson's special advisor and stupid moon Dominic Cummings. In unrelated news and unnamed sources, <coughs> after spending two years in a bunker then making everyone who meets him think he's a prick, I'm sure Cummings will survive self-isolation all okay. Wait, if everyone's all locked down with Lurgy, then just who's in charge? Well, never fear, as the Prime Minister is releasing videos from home, where despite being ill, he's still wearing a suit and tie, further proving my conspiracy theory that he's unable to dress himself and now will be stuck in those clothes for a week. 
Or maybe Johnson's aware that without formal clothes, he looks like a lump of uncooked dough and that might cause issues as people flock to number 10 in the thousands for their bread supplies. Whatever it is, the Prime Minister has assured us that he's still okay to lead from behind closed doors, even if he can't work out how to put pyjamas on. And he's of such a sound mind that he's decided to spend £5.8 million sending a letter to every household in the UK telling them to stay at home. A plan that's highly flawed in that if postal workers receive it first, they won't go out and deliver it. What a great idea, Boris, sending everyone a physical item from a man who's been infected with the virus so that it can be physically chucked into your safe space. Why doesn't he just go round himself in his weak old suit, shouting stay at home through people's letterboxes before popping his todger through and waving it around? That's what Churchill would have done. £5.8 million on letters a month after they should have sent them is fine though, isn't it? You know, there's money for everything now, except protective gear for NHS staff or enough tests for everyone on the front line. But who needs those when you can wrap a letter around your face and put at least one of your hands into the envelope as a makeshift glove? Actually, that's not entirely true, as there is now a National Supply Distribution Response Team delivering personal protective equipment to the NHS. And according to Michael Gove at the press briefing on Sunday, there are now 10,000 coronavirus tests a day being carried out. Except all records show that there are actually only 7,000. But who knows with this government, maybe there are also 3,000 tests that have already happened and so definitely count. Ugh, naughty Michael. Doesn't he realise a law has been passed meaning that giving fake news about the pandemic is now illegal? It's not just the test stat either. The government are also manipulating the death stats by saying they won't include ones where the family haven't yet been informed. Which sounds really caring, but I'm not sure how anyone would look at an overall number and immediately go, oh, the seventh one today must have been my Uncle Phil. This is assuming people look at the stats that closely anyway, and if they all are, chances are there was absolutely no need to spend £5.8 million on a bloody letter. The other thing that hasn't been clarified was just why the government failed to take part in an EU deadline to source life-saving ventilators, something the EU said we could still be included in, despite Brexit. Instead, initially, Number 10 said it was because we are no longer an EU member and we were making our own efforts. You know, such as sending a letter round that people can roll into a tube and breathe through. But when that response was rightly criticised as putting Brexit over breathing, the story changed to just being, oh, sorry, uh, it's because we missed the deadline. Ah, shit, sorry everyone. I'll have it to you by the morning. Just deduct all those extra deaths from my paycheck, eh? It's okay though, as the UK have commissioned lots of companies to make ventilators, including weapons manufacturer BAE Systems, which must make a nice change for them, saving lives for once. Other companies in the big ventilator scheme included Boris Johnson's Bezzy mates at JCB, a company that usually helps people breathe by just knocking down their walls, and several car companies who are keen to keep people alive so they can kill the planet later. The government's advice on construction workers has also confused many, with both Gove and Communities Minister Robert Look Mum, I made a face in my semolina, Jenrick, saying that work on sites could continue as long as it was done safely, with social distancing rules in place. I can think of nothing safer than someone up a ladder while the man at the bottom of it stands two metres away to keep it secure. Imagine how safe passing a hammer becomes when it's suddenly a throwing contest. Ah, all sounding very safe to me. While builders are being told to continue working, Parliament has closed for a month-long recess. Though, let's face it, unlike builders, if MPs stayed at work, it's unlikely they'd have done anything constructive. Also, now several ministers and the Prime Minister have all showed symptoms of coronavirus, it's probably for the best to take everyone out of that windowless, closely-packed chamber. The only issue is how many MPs will work from home when they don't know just which of their many homes to be at. 
For those very uncertain about their job future, the Chancellor and Banzai from the Lion King, Rishi Sunak, finally remembered that the self-employed exist in his 12th budget. Or was it his 38th? I don't know. I lost count at some point last week. Anyway, he's promising that all self-employed, except for some of them, will be paid 80% of their profits, which is amazing, uh, though they won't get those till June. Which should be fine, as I'm sure everyone earning absolutely zero income will be able to survive solely on the promise of exposure until then. Sunak said it was very hard to come up with a plan that includes everyone, though, as apparently some self-employed people will be making more money than usual right now. Really? A funeral director's self-employed? I didn't think that the man with the end is nice sandwich board was still able to work in the lockdown. Huh, who knew? Meanwhile, the NHS is still working incredibly hard for horrifically long hours, with temporary hospitals being set up in London, Birmingham and Manchester. The London one is called the Nightingale, after Florence, not Annie, I think, as I'm not sure an old grey whistle test would really help those with the virus at all. It's at the Excel Centre in East London with between 4,000 to 5,000 beds, something I hope they keep there for after this pandemic passes, as it'll be a lot easier to cope with all the boring home shows they have if you can snooze through them. A call for 250,000 NHS volunteers had to be put on hold after 750,000 signed up to help, which is just incredible and really heartwarming. Those people will be transporting equipment or patients, collecting food and other vital jobs, and I'm certain when all this is done, they'll be rewarded by an expectation that they'll continue to do all that for free for many years after, while the government boasts that they've increased recruitment in healthcare. There was an overwhelming response to clap for the NHS, a call that I thought sounded harsh as they're already prone to corona infection, so wishing STIs on them seems really mean. But no, it was actually everyone standing on their doorsteps or out of their windows and applauding the NHS all over the country for their efforts. A wonderful thing to do, though if you voted Conservative in the last election, it's a tad weird and more like saying, yeah, you did it despite the odds. I wonder if to those voters this is all just one big reality show where you vote for the task to get harder but are impressed when they make it through and next election we'll all vote in their masses for emergency room nurses to eat live spiders and doctors to dive into an ice-cold pool between patients and collect stars with their teeth. Who knows what people really think in this new world where we're all trapped in our own homes or someone else's if you've really badly timed a one-night stand. We are not yet accustomed to our new rules where coughing on emergency workers is now illegal which is going to make getting a hernia check even more scary. Police now have the power to return people to their homes using reasonable force, but on the plus side, that'll still be cheaper than getting a cab. Officers can also ensure parents are doing all they can to stop their kids from breaking the rules, but if they really wanted to help, they'd just look after them for a few hours to make up for all the childcare support we've lost. To ease pressure on the police doing such useful jobs as criticising your parenting, retired officers have been called to return to duty, something that should only be allowed if they're paired with a young reckless rookie and say, I'm too old for this shit at least eight times a day. With Johnson self-isolating, we now have the Foreign Secretary and condom pulled over a knee, Dominic Raab, in charge. Because who better to lead the country in its hour of need than a man who likely thinks coronavirus is a series of islands somewhere in the big sea. You know, the one that's big and wet and has fishes in it. Having Raab and Gove announce everything feels slightly off kilter, like when your usual breakfast TV presenters are replaced by that sweaty couple who clearly go dogging and only ask all the least appropriate questions. Raab did the daily brief like a child who's shocked that they've been asked to read in front of the class having not prepared anything, and he said that Britain stranded abroad will be flown home. Which sounds great, but to be honest, if I was somewhere sunny and was told that I'd be dragged back to Britain where I had to stay indoors, I'd feel a little bit cheated. 
A £75 million arrangement is being made to charter flights from the UK to places where no commercial flights are running due to the pandemic, something that's been announced just as EasyJet say they're grounding their fleet for at least two months, meaning that even more people will be stuck, stranded 50 miles away from the city centre that they thought they were going to in the first place. EU trade talks are continuing over video links with Michael Gove leading them, which will allow EU leaders to minimise his face into as small a window as possible to make things more bearable for them. Downing Street have insisted there's no change to their timetable for arranging a trade deal, but they aren't accounting for how every day feels like a Sunday and time doesn't really mean anything anymore, so most of that timetable is now irrelevant. In other news, very soon not to be Labour leader anymore and remnants of wet card on a sideboard, Jeremy Corbyn, has said that the government's response to coronavirus has proved that he was absolutely right about public spending in the 2019 election. That's not wrong, but if only he'd put, and we'll all have a big pandemic to justify it on page two, then Labour might have won. Labour announced their new leader this weekend, with it likely being personified sinus problems, Keir Starmer, who will apparently appoint women who always looks like how an alien would disguise itself in a children's drama, Rachel Reeves, as his shadow chancellor. Clever plan, that. If the Conservatives are winning popularity by actually supporting people for once, why not be a true opposition and get in someone who opposes welfare? I fully expect the new version of Labour to really embrace this stance and announce their ideas for less money to the NHS too. That'll be a vote winner. The Liberal Democrats are delaying their leadership contest until 2021 in the hope that by then people will be so excited about going outside that they won't care which wallpaper of a person gets it. And, oh, you've put your thumb over the camera and used your flash. Oh, no, wait, it's his face. Nigel Farage is in talks to be on the next season of Channel 4's Celebrity Hunted. Seems he's realised that post-Brexit, the only way he'll get new followers is if they're after him with dogs. Lastly, Prince Charles has recovered from having a virulent, dangerous germ that passes on from person to person via bodily fluids. But as well as being the brother of Prince Andrew, he's also got over the coronavirus. Hey, how is there still so much news? No one is doing anything. Are you doing anything? I'm, I mean, I am. I'm not much. I'm not going outside. I'm not saying it's getting to me, but two days ago there was a spider in our bathroom and usually I'd be popping a glass over that eight-legged bastard, getting a bit of paper underneath and flinging out the window like it was a bucket of piss in the Victorian times. Instead, I had a lengthy conversation with it where I asked it how things are for spiders right now and what the outside world is like. Yeah. Uh, are you worried about what it's going to be like when we can see people again? I am. I'm certain I'm going to start turning up to social occasions in my pyjamas with stains all down the front of them before spending most conversations trying to move their face to the side so I can look at Twitter instead. I'm also unnecessarily fearful of breaking all these new lockdown rules. Um, I'm going to drive over to my parents tomorrow to drop a few bits of food off as they're in their 70s and staying in. And I know that's allowed, but having read reports of police charging people for driving around for no reason, I'm really worried I'll get pulled over. And can you imagine going to prison for dropping off some food and having all the big perps scared of you in case you, I don't know, deliver them some lettuce? Yeah, don't mess with big tea, they'd say, or you'll wake up tomorrow with some brown bread in the wrong slice size because that was all they had, honest. Are you coping? All okay, though. Uh, clearly, I'm not. What was that all about? Um, I, I am. I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm, so, I'm starting to ease into this life a little bit. Uh, we've begun watching The Tiger King on Netflix, and that is amazing viewing, um, though it's not the sequel to The Lion King that I'd expected, and now I realise why it's not on Disney+. Plus. Um, silliness. I'm just being silly. I am actually doing okay, I think, but we're only in week two, uh, and I did uh, genuinely shout, oh, fuck the park, uh, when it was discussed as the only option for having a walk somewhere that we have in our area. But we're going to get there, aren't we? We'll all get there. We'll all get there. It's only six billion more weeks to go. It's only the rest of our lives stuck inside like Morlocks. Um, thank you so much for still listening to this. Normal.
nonsense. Um, apparently, podcast listens are down overall with this virus, probably due to the lack of commuting or time without children or the fact that everyone's watching Tiger King on Netflix instead. Um, but for this show, they went up last week, which is amazing. So hello to all you new lot that have joined, if you're still there. Um, and I hope you're playing this show very loudly to your children at full volume so that they learn things. Mm-hmm. Um, look, uh, you lot have been so amazing with your donations this past week and I'll be honest I'm shit at saying thank you enough for these things but genuinely uh, you've probably saved my neck when it comes to rent this month which is just incredible and I am so so grateful what with the comedy scene completely and utterly dying Um, that's not true there's some some virtual gigs it's not the same when you can't hear the laughs Um, but yeah I I guess I should be okay now that the government have announced I might get some money in June if I can survive till then I can eat shoes right you can eat shoes yeah and it turns out that it'll be an average of profits earned over the last three years so my wife on maternity leave last year and her getting uh, no profits then and me doing edinburgh fringe the year before therefore making no profits we should be in a tiny sum of not very much um i know they can't cater it to everyone i know i know, I know you can't but they also really haven't catered it to many comedians so that's great thank you thank you Richie. Universal basic income, please. Oh, no, but what if it works and everyone wants it to stay? Oh, yeah, that would be awful. Anyway, uh, sorry, what I meant to say was thank you, uh, Tons. Uh, You are definitely all right, you lot. And uh, I might even consider you friends, but, you know, social distancing and all that. Um, but seriously it's so appreciated and if you'd still like to throw me a few quid these next few weeks months god knows years uh, they are the time to do it um, either at the ko-fi.com forward slash parpore bro um, and thank you so much to Farron somebody J somebody number two different somebody uh, Mark Matt Yossarian Ben T and Lord Shawhan for your absolute kindness uh, in the past week um, or you can join the patreon.com forward slash parpore bro where I put absolutely no extra stuff because I don't have time um but you can still join it out of sheer want to do so so thanks tons to moes and dave for doing that too um also please still review this thing over at your podcast apps especially apple Podcasts. come on you've got time to do it and do just tell people about it if it helps you get through these silly times in any way whatsoever um also any other suggestions for what you want to hear while we're all in lockdown uh, what type of guests content weird screaming noises you need right now do drop me a line and let me know because i have i have no idea there's only so many virus specialists you can speak to are there I mean, only so many there's only so many virus specialists you can speak to i know i haven't spoken to any yet um but if i did there'd only be so many um there's no real admin this week uh, because uh, i mean nothing is happening um but i am doing various streaming things on next up comedy if you check out their hecklethevirus.com website which i always put in the pod blurb um also if you do actually need a podcast for your children i have been doing regular short comedy club for kids podcasts uh, where myself and uh, another comedian um different one each episode answer questions sent into us by children uh, so far questions have included things like who killed all the dragons why does sweet corn come out in your poo and why does Cinderella's glass slip and not shatter when she runs away um all very important questions uh, and the podcasts are a lot of fun to do and they contain much talking of farts so do make your small people listen uh, if you've got them or, or if you like comedy about farts i mean who doesn't only idiots so uh, do check that out um and uh, we also need kids to send in questions for comedians to answer to that podcast so if they fancy doing that after hearing that would be very much appreciated 
Um, on this week's show, I am speaking to brilliant neuroscientist and comedian Dean Burnett, uh, all about how on earth we cope with this sort of thing. Um, I give Jeremy Corbyn the traditional Parpol Bro tribute, and there's actually some positive news in the middle, sort of. I mean, let's face it, almost anything is positive news right now, isn't it, when it's not virus-related? I mean, on Thursday, me and my daughter spent 20 minutes watching a little man in a high-vis go on a small crane and fix a lamppost on our street, and honestly, it was the movie highlight of the year. Like, seriously, Disney need to get on that case, so... Uh, uh, yeah, it's hard to go wrong, isn't it? Hard to go wrong. Last year, I don't know if you remember, uh, but to honour Mental Health Awareness Week, the Palace of Westminster lit up in big green lights. As if to say, we can't be asked to spend money on mental health issues, so we'll just show you the colour of money and hope that soothes enough of your anxiety to save us from pennies. Politicians have been great at raising mental health awareness, but with a social care plan nowhere in sight and incredibly long waiting times for people with mental health issues to see specialists, making people aware of it just feels a bit like telling people to make sure they notice that fire that's already started burning their house down while they loudly announce how sad it is they can't do anything about it as they drink from a massive vat of water. With all of us in lockdown, though, uh, mental health is now a very, very key issue. Uh, Not only do we have the anxiety that we might get coronavirus or pass on coronavirus or turn into coronavirus, uh, there's worries about when you'll next be able to buy loo roll, whether you still have a job, though if you don't, you can use all those work files for bum wiping needs. There are the effects of a lack of social contact, or if you enjoy that, the annoying way everyone keeps FaceTiming when you want to be left alone to watch Tiger King on Netflix. Uh, There are parental worries about if it's wrong to let children watch 15 hours of TV a day, and should that include Tiger King on Netflix? And what earth you're going to watch once you've got through tiger king on netflix it's safe to say none of us will come out of these strange strange times unscathed in the head department and for those with mental health issues it might exacerbate current issues even more but is it okay to feel anxious shouldn't we be absolute champions of this sort of stress after years and years of brexit trump climate change wars refugee crises and that time michael gove did the wham rap and we all cringed so hard we dislodged parts of our face This week, I spoke to the brilliant Dean Burnett, who is a neuroscientist, comedian and writer of the best-selling books all about your head and what happens in it. Uh, The Happy Brain, The Idiot Brain and Brain Yapping. Dean is very good at knowing exactly what's occurring in our brains as we remain trapped indoors, our lives flipped all upside down Bel Air style due to virus times, and when you watch episode 3 of Tiger King where it gets even more weird. Look, I promise I'm not trying to get a Netflix sponsorship much. I mean, come on Netflix, just a little, little bit one, just a little bit one. Anyway, uh, Dean very happily spoke to me from his garden shed office where he explained all, while we both realised actually now might be the first time in our stupid freelance lives where we have the advantage for once. Uh, Before we go into this, um, I am aware that while Dean is absolutely brilliant at mental health issues, um, he also discusses neuroscience and that isn't the same as, say, having a mental health charity or therapist on to discuss kind of what provisions need to be in place after this. Um, But I thought this chat would be most useful to all of us, however you're feeling right now. So I hope you enjoy and find this useful, as I definitely did. Here's Dean. Hi, Dean. Uh, it is great to talk to you today. Um, first of all, before anything else, how are you coping in this lockdown environment? Are you all OK? Yeah, well, um, I say for the last year and a half, I've actually, uh, well, I've spent most of my working days alone in my garden shared office, uh, which I've converted. And uh, so this isn't much of a change for me. I'm actually, <laughs> life hasn't changed a great deal apart from my kids are around more often. And that's especially like a prolonged and suddenly unexpected summer holiday, really. 
Um, right, that's quite nice. I mean, did it take you a while to even cotton on anything was happening? I mean, this, it feels like there's almost a danger of just, <laughs> oh, there are children here. Something must have occurred. Well, maybe, yeah. I was thinking, like, oh, well, Amazon Prime's taking a long time. What's going on there? Oh, <laughs> virus? Oh, good Lord. Uh, yeah, so it, uh, um, um, I've not been out of the loop, but uh, it, it hasn't been much of a uh, oh, circumstantial change for me. Uh, but it's uh, obviously my, my kids need to bear off the energy somehow. So I've had to set up an assault course in the garden and things like that, and, which is fine. Oh, wow. Just, uh, there may be some background noise from children running, bouncing, screaming, and uh, and so on. But yeah, that's, that is that is quite all right. Is I think I think for a lot of listeners who are, who are stuck indoors, background noise of children running and screaming might actually be quite nice. So I think that that's yeah. a good thing. That's a very good thing. We also have um, I will say we, we do have a neighbour's dog, which is like a husky thing, and he's 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 prone to howling like a wolf sometimes. But it's um. It's very unnerving when you hear a wolf howling particularly. It's not the not the best mindset to get into. Yeah, I, I I thought that just sort of adds to the uh, sort of I don't know any any kind of um, uncomfortable feelings around now yeah. that werewolves might be lurking yeah. as well as a like, pandemic. It's not really the apocalypse. Oh, oh, yeah. great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually a bad sight uh, in films, in my experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it rarely, it rarely leads to a good thing, does it? Rarely, rarely. Um, brilliant. Well, well, this this brings me perfectly to the, the first thing that I want to ask you uh, with your area of expertise. Um, you obviously uh, seem quite well and things haven't changed too much for you, which is lovely. Um, but what kind of effects can being on lockdown and being in self-isolation have on people's mental health? There are quite a lot of people now that are having to do this that probably haven't had to do it before or aren't used to working from home. Um what what sort of effects is that going to have on people and are, are we meant to be able to kind of cope with that lack of contact it is a really interesting one because there's so many different aspects to take into account you know because i'm i'm a neuroscientist so i'm the human brain and what it does is my area but that's that's, that's a lot of things you know <laughs> literally everything humans do can be tied back to the brain in some way so i've got you know it, it's a large umbrella to, to to wander around under it's i think there's, there's so many um, consequences from this happening in that like the the basic simple stuff, the everyday like your routine is suddenly gone, and we are creatures of habit. It's uh, we learn to pick the regular patterns and think, find these things reassuring because you know the, the human brain is a very demanding organ, and we like to we like to minimize effort where we can. So if you've got a routine, a daily routine, you find comfort in that because you know what's going to happen, you know what 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 to be, what you know what's going to happen when and where, and what uh, what your schedule will be like. That's something we find we take comfort in because I think. All it boils down to that the human brain and well, people, by definition, are really kind of very stressed out by uncertainty, uh, even in small doses. And not so stressed out from a full-on panic attack, but it causes a, a negative effect. It, you know, it adds to, you know, it squirts a bit more cortisol onto the system. It makes us a little bit less comfortable. And right now, we are dealing with perhaps, you know more uncertainty in our daily lives than we have ever done for like for, for decades, uh, for a generation or two at least. I guess maybe Second World War was the last time something like this happened, or Cold War maybe. You know, when you, you, can you say for certain that the world isn't going to end any second? That's that must have been quite a harrowing thing to go through. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was, but I was just sorry to interrupt you there. I just was uh-huh. going to say we've had about four years of lots of uncertainty. You know, this has been a real build-up of uncertainty mm. politically and now medically as well as politically. Is it? I mean should we be getting used to this do you think or is it normal to still feel kind of even more stressed by all of this yeah well that's um again you can look at it two ways and i think the last few years of constant uncertainty may have made us a bit more uh you know <clears throat> a bit more um 
habituated, a bit more familiar with this, uh, more familiar with uncertainty, which is a strange thing to say out loud. But uh, no, I think it, it may not have had such an impact on us. But politically, at least, you know, all this stuff is it's all abstract. It's all kind of theoretical. I don't know. Are we going to leave the EU? Are we going to strike a trade deal? Is Trump going to win? These are all things which. You can see on the news, but in terms of your daily routine, your daily life, they don't re- haven't had much impact yet, you know, apart from those who are like directly affected. And uh, so, you know, we always seem to fall back on the familiar, like when things are uncertain and scared, we, we, we stick to what we know, you know, like, like when people, even when kids are scared, I want my mummy, as in that's a familiar person and and things like that. But, you know, we, we don't like uncertainty, but we can fall back on the familiar, the, the routine and you know, our, our safe our comfort zones and this has really quickly and very unexpectedly taken that not taken it away but really had a massive impact on our daily lives and that's going to perhaps cause a great deal more uncertainty but in a far more tangible way so it feels a lot more real it is real and that means like it's not quite the same as the whole brexit uncertainty or you know, what's trump going to do with stuff type stuff because that that's occupies a part of your brain but you still got to, you know, still got to eat, still got to go to work, and that was things that kept on happening. But now those things aren't happening, so this probably feels a lot more tangible to most people, and that'll have an enhanced effect as a stressor and the uncertainty of it all. So all the things which you take for granted, or we, we've learned to take for granted in our daily lives, like you know, the ability if I need toilet paper, I will just go and get some toilet paper. That's <laughs> never been an issue for most people alive today, but now it is, and that's. I guess like it doesn't come more fundamental than that. Like you know, if you can't actually, you know, take care of your bodily waste in the, in the usual manner, that that will really hit home. And I go, can I get food? Can I get the medicine I am used to expecting? And these are all things that are going to stress people out. And you know, even in just the potential, you know, most people have, you know, if you stockpile, you have stuff. Or you know, I think anyone's going to starve to death anytime soon. But you know, there's also the food bank stuff. So there's perhaps there's a there's a there's a, you know, there's, a there's a concern there at least. But but by and large, you know, this situation is more real, more tangible, it will have a more direct impact on everyone. And this is going to lead to so many different types of stress, not, not, necessarily, not necessarily overwhelming in their own right. But taken together, I think, yeah, you're going to see a big spike in it's like general mental health problems and issues, not like full on full blown diagnoses, but people's well-being is going to be hit for a while, I think. And it's going to take some practice and some uh, you know, some effort to, to to take care of that, to look to look that. To, 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 I think people should be more wary of that, and that you know, not not wary of the fact that you know, what to do about it, but it's wary that it it will happen. If you're feeling lousy right now, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling panic, that's a perfectly logical, natural reaction to what's happening. There's nothing wrong with you in that in that respect. You are your brain is reacting as it should, as it as it would hopefully do in a situation like this. So. Yes, there's lots to take into account here. So, you know, if I could spend the whole podcast just lifting different ways in which people will be stressed out by this. And I mean, I, I made my own podcast when I do do, do exactly that because you know, we've all got a lot of time on our hands right now. Yes, yes, that is the thing, which does make me sort of think that, that it, I think it's the first time as a freelancer I've ever felt prepared for something, not having any routine ever <laughs> in my life. Um, and I, I wonder, does it, you know, does it affect children in the same way? Because I mean, my, my daughter's two and absolutely doesn't care about any of this because she doesn't grasp it and life hasn't changed all that much for her whatsoever. But obviously kids that are at school, you know, were at school, is it, is it does it have more or less of an effect on children? Are they more adaptable to this sort of thing, or is there no difference um, at, at all? I think, from what I know, I don't think they'll be 
affected more, but also don't think they'll be affected less. They'll be affected uh, in different ways because they don't have the responsibilities to look after a household or they don't have job pressures and things like that. But you know, they are, you know children learn by socialising a lot, so like cutting them off with their friends for a prolonged period. It's, it's not going to be forever, I suppose, but it will feel longer for children. I think when when you're, when you're younger, like six weeks on a holiday, it feels like half a year because... Even in just basic terms, it's a bigger chunk of your life than it is for an adult because you know, if you're only six years old or eight years old, six weeks is a long time. And now we've got at least 12 weeks of this, which will take us into summer. And that's going to be, you know, it'll, it'll probably feel longer to them. And having their movement restricted, so not being able to go outside and you know, to have to understand that it's dangerous to see grandma and grandpa, these will affect kids. Of course they will. Um, not necessarily, you know, in a lasting way, in a permanently damaging way. It's just, I think it's, you know, kids might start acting out because the certainties that we've given them, you know, the adult world has provided them and say, like, this is how this works. This is what you got to do. you got to go to school. And those are suddenly up in the air. And I was like, well, you can't go to school. You can't do <laughs> anything. You, you, you can only, um, you can play with your computer for a bit or you can hang around the house. And that's going to be, it'll have an effect on them. Um, yeah. Because they are human beings. So they have a human brain sure. like anyone else does. Uh, but, you know, kids are very resilient. Kids are far more adaptable and, you know, Dirty than most adults give credit for, particularly in terms of the brain, because you know, the brain's still developing, still, still forming, still shaping. It's uh, sort of like young kids are quite robust in that respect. So I think you know, they, they'll have a hard time of it, perhaps, but they will be fine in the end. Uh, unless, of course, they have other you know, um, issues or or existing problems, in which case that's a whole, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, I think it's going to be particularly hard for teenagers because this is a particular time of their life when uh, one thing they want to do more than anything is to be away from their parents. They want to explore things and be with their peer groups and you know, their, their brains are adapting that way to seek out new relationships and suddenly they can't. And, you know, the whole when you're under my roof, you obey my rules thing. That's going to be very tense for the, for yeah, the foreseeable. And, yeah, so I think, but also I think you know, parents can help that by acknowledging this, accepting that, look, you don't want this. I don't want this. None of us like this. It's, <laughs> it's crap. But we'll get through it if we just if we don't pretend that everything's normal. I think that's a, probably something to flag up. If anyone's, you know, it might be tempting just to carry on as things have always been to say, oh, it's perfectly normal. It'll be all be over soon. But that sort of that's kind of suppressing it. That's you know, that's a sense of denial, and I don't think that's actually going to be healthy in the long run because. If it's going to be over in a week, fair enough. But this looks like it's going to be several months at least. And I think it, the sooner you accept that, the sooner you, you can work out a better way to cope with it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we, we've mentioned sort of uh, families and, and people that are living together with other people. But there's, you know, loneliness was quite a big issue in the UK before this happened. Mm. Um, I'm guessing this is just going to make it all so much worse. Or is there anything in the fact that everyone's going through it that people might feel a sort of, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, hey, we're all lonely together. I don't know if that remotely helps. Um, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. Uh, humans are, in most accounts, the most social creature on Earth, maybe. Like, we have some cities which, in terms of population density, are way more you know, populous than like, insect colonies and things like that. We are a very, very gregarious social... We're very tolerant of each other. I know, like, if you look at the news or anything on Twitter for more than 10 seconds, it seems like... We're the worst of these social people. But, <laughs> but I think, consider how many humans there are, over 7 billion, and how many, you know, how often humans fight and kill each other. We're actually incredibly tolerant of each other by, by most species' standards. Like I say, like uh, I've done this in talks when like, a room full of like 100 people come to see my thing, and 
I think if you were chimps, you know, this wouldn't be happening right now. Put 100 chimps in a room, like, even an hour, you've got 50 chimps. There'd be blood everywhere. There'd be feces everywhere. And, you know, some of my gigs go badly. I won't deny it. But it hasn't <laughs> gone quite that far. And that's, you know, but that's something we, we, we can, we, we need the other humans. So we actually, you know, big chunks of the brain are, have evolved and developed in order to facilitate interpersonal communication and contact. And empathy is a very sort of strong human thing. And being cut off from other people will be harder. And it does, that's why loneliness is such a, such a stressor, such a, such a debilitating thing. So this obviously will make it worse that people can't come and see you, but it could also help in that you know, we have the technology now to communicate with other people of long distance and far more people are seemingly inclined to do that now. So like, there's a drive now to check on the elderly and the vulnerable and see if they need anything. So some people could be experiencing more human contact, not less. And perhaps when this all this is all over, then the understanding of, you know, like people have a much better idea of what it's like to be stuck indoors and away from everyone. So there's at least some sympathy, some empathy, some a greater awareness of this whole loneliness problem. Um, so yeah, I, I like to think, you know, I'm, I tend to stay on the positive side of things. I look for the silver lining in there whenever I can, because that's my mechanism, I guess, of coping. But I like to think we'll see some improvements after all this from you know, when people know what it's like to be cut off from everyone and find that genuinely you know, upsetting or disturbing or just genuinely unpalatable. And maybe we can see see more efforts to to do something about it you know, going forward, to, to drop into business speak for a second there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's a very interesting thing. I mean, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you um, is, you know, you're talking about maybe we will empathise with people that are, that are lonely. We also have suddenly a load more people empathising uh, with how sort of terrible universal credit payments are and how low they are mm. suddenly as everyone's on them. We're going, £94 a week is awful. And people with disabilities and, and people and benefits be saying, yeah, we've, we've done that for 10 years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wake up. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and, and obviously all the all this current crisis affecting people on low income uh, more than anyone else and, and people on low income already have more stress. Um, do you think that we may come out of this and maybe see a need to restore some of the mental health services and support that have been cut? over the last 10 years because it's been quite hacked away you know it is maybe would a benefit of this be that this is one of the things we suddenly realize we need i'd like to think so um <clears throat> I, I can't see how we'd end up with this with without more people being far more keenly aware of the state of mental health services in this country and finding that unacceptable because that is that is the case that's how it that's very much the truth um it, it, it I, 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 and then <clears throat> i'll try that again but then I'm also thinking, you know, after this, I think more people would be far more conscious of the, the the physical medical side of things, like oh, the intensive care and stuff is getting a lot more attention than it ever has been before, rightly so, right now. And there's always been the problem of mental health services being treated as something of an afterthought. And that mental mental illness and mental health issues themselves are, do have that issue of, of, again, they're not as tangible, they're not as visible as physical ailments. And like I think I've written books about this, like when you... Say to someone, oh, I've got a headache. They know what that's like. They, they know, you know, I've got, a, well, I've had a headache. Must, that's unpleasant. Or I feel sick. Or like, I felt sick. So we can relate a lot more to physical problems. And if someone says, I'm, you know, I'm really, really ill with this thing, you can, you can sort of extrapolate from your own experiences what that must be like. But if someone says, I've got depression, you say, well, I've been sad. I'm fine. And that, and that that's very, that's a very wrong comparison. But it's one people are compelled to make because that's how we think about things. Mm. And. So yeah, I think the you know the, the physical cost of coronavirus uh, may still overshadow the mental health one, um, at least in, in the immediate aftermath. And that's 
I can, you can argue like, well, that's that's probably the more pressing concern, right? No, no. What's the point of servicing someone's some <clears throat> What's the point of fixing someone's mental health if they're going to die in half an hour if you don't, you know, get them breathing again? And that's you know, there, there's that side of it. But yeah, I like to I like to think I like to hope that people will be far more conscious of the need for good and proper mental health care. And I guess there's one sort of potential silver lining in this, in that for the past several years there has been a drive to make more mental health care services available online remotely um and that's another factor with you know, the problem with mental health in that you know, you've got a team of surgeons it's it's a set procedure you know like a, this heart operation is going to happen this transplant is going to happen uh, but at least it's far more quantifiable whereas someone comes in with a mental health problem it's a lot easier it's a lot it's a lot harder to first off diagnose it you need you know, often need the mm. consultation with several different experts and and uh, and physicians and all like you know psychologist, clinical and otherwise neurologist and so on. And it's often a case of trial and error as to what actually works for them. And if you, if you do need a talking therapy, as most mental health cases will, would benefit from, then that requires you know, a, a professional person speaking to you for like an hour at a time, several weeks in a row. It, it's a lot of time and resource, which isn't, which is very hard to come by right now. And people say that about Oh, a doctor's just too quick to give an antidepressant. So I, I argue that's probably quite true. Yes, and I can, they fall back on the chemical intervention quite readily. And there's there's a problem with that with like trained doctors who are far more um, who've been coached to think in physical terms. They think of a mental health problem as a physical problem which can be treated by attacking the underlying cause. But that's not how mental health things seem to work. More often than not, they need a more holistic approach, a more cognitive one as well. Uh, but you know, if, if someone comes in and says, "I've got depression." And you've got your GP. You've got like only 15 minutes to talk to them. And it takes like another six weeks to get another appointment at least. He said, look, I can either suggest you wait six months for a a consultation with someone who might give you some CBT or give this pack of the pills right now and see if they work. You're going to pick pick the latter one. They are very cheap to produce. They're very easy to get hold of. And it's a much more cost-effective option. So, but it's not the... It's not 100%. No therapy is 100% reliable, and you know, people have a bit of a problem with antidepressants still. And you, know, you shouldn't always revert straight to the, the chemical inter, inter, intervention. The best approaches tend to be combinations of medication and talking therapies like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So, then, you know, to, to try and minimize this, uh, <clears throat> this labor cost of mental health, there's a lot more work done to try and make them remote. So, like, can you do, can software do CBT? Can can you do therapy sessions over Skype so a vulnerable person doesn't have to uh, travel long distance via public transport when they're already in a very low state? And I can imagine that sort of side of things is going is to see a, quite a substantial boom from all this when you have a very readily, um, <laughs> a very anxious population like across the entire world who would like some intervention and can't leave the house. So already we've seen so many more video conferences and a huge sudden boom in uh, uh, Therapists offering their services online, some for money, which isn't necessarily the most uh, altruistic approach, I guess. But I will, I, 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 like, I like to say I'm not charging for this, by the way. That's um, a flag that I'm right now. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. I really yeah, appreciate that's good. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, yeah. So I think we, you know, we're already seeing a spike in just general awareness of the need for uh, mental health provision and in an online technological or remote capacity, and I. You know, that's a gene you can't put back in the bottle. Once these discoveries are made, if you know, we're all in one long uh, you know, cultural experiment at the moment, technically, not one anyone volunteered for or anyone was planning or wanted to, but seeing as we're here, we might as well see if we can get something from it. I mean, yeah. I have similar thoughts. Like, I wonder if this is going to lead to a boom in um, 
the space industry. Like uh, we've got a whole population now, which is used to spending long periods of time isolating <laughs> and living on very meager rations, and with a desperate desire to get off the planet. So, um, so yeah, so you might see like a lot more astronauts coming out of this as well. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry. And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with Dean in a minute, but first... As is tradition on this show, uh, when a major party leader leaves their post, I, on this podcast, have to give them a partly political send-off. Hence why I didn't do one for Joe Swinson. But Wednesday was the final PMQs for Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, before this coming weekend we discover just which one out of service robot, garbage pail kid or cartoon mouse gets to take over the opposition, and find out why all the public and media now hates them instead. As Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn succeeded in dragging the political conversation leftwards, but unfortunately did so while alienating Jewish people and losing elections. He outlasted two Conservative Prime Ministers and a leadership challenge from a man who naturally camouflages against the filing cabinet, Owen Smith. Corbyn revitalised grassroots politics and successfully engaged young people, but just sadly not enough for them to actually go out and vote. Sure, he didn't have it easy at all, at one point being vilified by the press for being both a terrorist and a pacifist at the same time, something that's very hard to do unless you say, throw bath bombs. But let's also be fair, while few politicians could get the response at Glastonbury Festival that he did, Corbyn often failed to communicate things quite so clearly during TV interviews. And you have to wonder if they'd just spent the entire Labour budget on a portable pyramid stage if he would have held his own a tad better on Ma, yelling his policies at the journalists through a major PA system half a mile away. But this isn't a critique of Jezza Corbo's, as personally, I always thought his policies were the way forward, but ultimately he was just a bit shit, which compared to the mountain of shit that is Johnson, was definitely a preferable electoral choice. I guess the public would prefer to smother themselves in turds and just embrace it, rather than have, say, a sandwich ruined by a speck and waste a day picking it out of their teeth. But regardless of your feelings towards him, Corbyn's time as El Big Labour honcho is now up even if so many of the policies his Labour manifesto promised are being implemented because of a pandemic. I wonder how it feels to have your ideas more successfully communicated by a germ that actively stops people from working together. Hmm. Anyway, here, as per tradition, is every description of Jeremy Corbyn that I've given him over the past five years of his Labour leadership, over some very appropriate beats. 
Maybe salute him by not bowing correctly while you listen. Jeremy Corbyn is the fashion inspiration for geography teachers everywhere. Jeremy Corbyn somehow manages to be unpopularly popular and popularly unpopular all at once. He's a one-man vintage clothing outlet. Jeremy, I bet he plays bowls Corbyn. An allotment lover who lost his plot. Jay Corbs, a.k.a. Jezza Corbster, a.k.a. Jeremy from the block. Bernard Cribbin's body double. Mumblebore the wizard. A Quentin Blake drawing. Hipster Radagast. The 2016 Scruffs finalist. Old Man Marley Standin. A man whose name sounds like someone being excited by rubbish. He's a quarter womble. I can't believe he doesn't own a narrowboat. Corbin is the official Japanese mascot for garden centres. He's a bag of giblets attached to a feather duster. He's a man who plays the game Risk by throwing all the figurines in the bin and popping a potted plant on the board instead. He's a human terrier. He's the captain of the Pequod. He's the former puppeteer of Sooty. He's Jack White's current main source of income. Jeremy Corbyn is what happens if you anthropomorphise a loaf of sorry. He's a man who I'm sure is just waiting for someone to pass on a rare item they found so he too can give them a clue to help them with their quest. He's a besuited stoat. He's a man whose password is about four paragraphs worth of characters, but he insists his computer shouldn't work for a few. Corbyn is the only parliamentary representative from Donaldson's Dairy. He's a stunt double for Stanley Tucci and Captain America. He's an unfun-sized Papa Smurf. He's Captain Side-Eye. He's Steve Zissou and the Life Erratic. He's a pinto bean with eyes. Jeremy Corbyn is a regular extra for old French children's books. Jeremy, I have special shoes for gardening Corbyn. If you bring me 10 rushrooms, I'll reward you with 100 rupees. He's a toothbrush in a suit. He's Charlie's Grandpa Joe. He's Elijah Wood from the future coming back to warn current day Elijah Wood that he'll get quite ill. Jeremy Corbyn is anthropomorphised fatigue. He's a rejected Coen Brothers film extra. He's an exhausted sea urchin. He's a charcoal sketch of an old sheet in the wind. He's a half-eaten corn cob. Someone made a thumbprint in that drying concrete. Jeremy Corbyn resembles a face drawn on your big toe peering out of a hole in your sock. He's a bearded twiglet. He's a physical manifestation of the feeling you have when you're stuck in a long queue. He's a Velcro gnome. He's a Q-tip with glasses. He's a sickly Mike trout. He's an animated corduroy elbow patch. He's a personified sigh. Jeremy Corbyn is a face drawn on a nutmeg husk. He's a Gerald Gardner dilute. He's a judgmental scallop. He's an AWOL scribble. A kiwi fruit with glasses. A cheap knockoff Papa Smurf where he's all red. He's Pauper Smurf. He's Miracle Max. He's King Julian from Madagascar's stunt double. He's a school nativity Snapchat filter. He's a Brillo pad. He's an exhausted shrew. He's all the wrong choices on a children's flipbook. He's a WOMAD mascot. Jeremy Corbyn is the personification of an old furniture shop. He's a man entirely composed of bits of tissue you might find in a trouser pocket after they've been washed. He's a distressed human fleece. He's the only human ever made entirely of chintz. He's Steve's issue on crack. He's several woodland creatures all standing on top of each other in a suit. Jeremy Corbyn is a sentient eyebrow. He's a winner of Uncle Bulgaria cosplay. He's a fuzzy felt construct. He's what if Bluto was really ill. He's an anthropomorphised jumble sale. He's an uncollectible Funko Pop. He's a Barney McGrew stunt double. An animated tea towel. A children's drawing of a schnauzer. A suspicious badger. 
Sydney and Ice Age, a grumpy terrier, Ernest Giveaway, a mouse who's shaved around the eyes, a Puddle Lane resident, Hide Your Pain Harold. Jeremy Corbyn is a man who looks like he travels around schools to tell them about the importance of harvest. He's what would happen if Hemingway wrote a novel about an allotment owner that had to fight a giant courgette. He's the main cast of a 70s public information film about safety hazards in libraries. He's a low-budget Ian McKellen character. Jeremy Corbyn is a background character from a Shane Meadows film. Farewell, Corbs. Have a good one. And now, with the future-looking lockdown-y, uh, let's do something a bit more cheery than usual on this podcast. I thought it might be a nice idea to look at some of the good changes the coronavirus has caused. Um, I know that it is, on the whole, a shit thing. Uh, I'm not just going to like it because everyone else isn't a fan, even though it's clearly playing for a cult crowd. Um, but the fact is, in amongst the more grim aspects of all of this, the pandemic has caused a few political changes that, even if they are temporary, are actually more progressive than anything the government had previously promised. Obviously, they haven't had a choice about most of it, but hey, at the moment where we're having to wear riot gear just to fail to buy some eggs, let's take what we can get. So, here is a new regular feature for now called... Yes, Corona VZ Positizi. Uh, and for this week's instalment, let's take a quick look at the railways. Yes, the old choo-choos already had the Northern Rail Line temporarily renationalised after Arriva's contract was ended earlier this year, on account of it being particularly shit. Which, for British trains, is really exceptional, isn't it? I mean, when you're up against Southern Rail and you still end up being the one the government decide not to renew, you got to feel like a chump. I mean, that's like winning Worst Doctor of the Year when up against Harold Shipman. Anyway, all Northern Rail got renationalised and Transport Secretary and Play-Doh horse Grant Shapps said it was temporary but that they knew change was needed. Well, coronavirus may have been that change in a way as the rail franchise system has now been completely suspended for at least a year. All losses by railway companies are now nationalised with operators running day-to-day services for a small management fee under an emergency measures agreement. Though why you trust any of them with emergency measures when they can't seem to contemplate the units of time or cost in normal circumstances, I don't know. So, look, there are caveats to this in that it's not yet known if the government are taking responsibility for pension contributions to the industry pension scheme and all of this is going to cost them several billion pounds at least, which, you know, there is the worry that we'll all suddenly be told we'll have to help pay it back through extreme austerity which then has to all be reversed in the next pandemic. But the fact is, for now, British rail services have been renationalised and maybe, just maybe, everyone might realise how easy it is to do that and then maybe it will stay that way and ticket prices might drop and people will use cars less and everything will be better. All I'm saying is that this feels like it could be the first time in ages that trains in Britain are actually on the right track. Yes, that is the gag I'm going with. Yes, that is the one I do every time I mention trains on this podcast. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, the other Corona Vizi positivity this week is that councils were told last week to house all homeless people, essentially ending homelessness overnight, which is amazing. Um, OK, it's not that easy as councils aren't being given any extra funding specifically to do this, though £1.6 billion of extra money has been allocated to local authorities as part of the third or maybe seventh of the Chancellor's budgets. Um, they happen so often. It just, it's so difficult, isn't it? Which one's which? Um, that may also not be enough to deal with it as there is an accommodation shortage. Uh, councils will have to utilise 
hotels, which include places like Travelodge, who gave everyone, including homeless families, uh, accommodating there by authorities, four hours, and then they turfed them all out. Uh, Travelodge's slogan, Sleep Tight, can now very easily have the first word in that removed. Um, there is also the issue of homeless migrants and refugees who have no access to public funding schemes and may be forgotten by all of this, which will require changes in the Home Office before they can get any help. Um, but while this instruction from the government is obviously due to exceptional times, it also shows that homelessness can be ended if the will is there. Councils are being instructed to set up rough sleeping coordination cells, keeping track of exactly who is homeless and where they're being sheltered, along with provisions for them and a record of those with alcohol and drug needs. Something that sounds very along the lines of part of Rosanna Haggerty of the US organisation Common Ground Community Solutions uh, towards feasibly ending homelessness permanently. Um, yes, there's every chance that once this virus goes, everywhere will then go full travelodge, but it might not be so easy just to make everyone homeless again when the government have proved that they can accommodate people overnight. I mean, it's not the greatest election slogan to boast that you ended homelessness and then got it started again months later because there was no longer a chance they might cough on rich people when asking for change. So, potentially positive. And that's just two things this time. There's who knows how many weeks we're going to need some positive news for, so I'm at least saving private schools closing for next week, which I consider good news, but I know after these next few months, a lot more parents may be angry that they can't send their kids away for considerable lengths of time. And now, back to Dean. I mean, it's touching on something, you, you know, you mentioned earlier that we're very sociable animals and, and you mentioned there that people now are getting, you know, we might need sort of therapy online and things like that. Do we get the same sort of, I, I don't know what the word would be because I'm so unscientific, but I don't know, like like hit to our brain or whatever. If, we're, if you're talking to someone online compared to if you're talking to them face to face in real life, does it give us the same uh, satisfaction, I suppose? If you want to sort of put it scientific to is it as salient a stimulus as uh, as right, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um It's it's different. Uh, that's something worth mentioning. I think I flagged up that a lot of people are concerned, like right, right before uh, this kicked off, people are saying, oh, social media is the worst thing that ever happened in society. And now it's all like, oh, thank God it's there because otherwise we'd all be doomed right now, which is, uh, it's funny how things change very quickly. It's, I think, well, I like it when, when it goes too far, like the, the social media thing, like there's so many complaints. And I think there's some, some uh, validity to them that people are using social media as opposed to you know, actual interpersonal interactions. And it can be more stimulating for the brain because, like I said, we've evolved to be social creatures. So interpersonal communication, there's a lot going on in the brain dedicated to that. Like people like, like things like eye contact, reading facial expressions. We have dedicated brain regions like the fusiform gyrus which seems to be evolved purely to recognize spot and read faces now it's part of the reason why we see faces everywhere like you know look there's jesus in my toast it's just burnt bread it's not the messiah you know, um, but people insist on saying that you know like oh if it's a corn chip or something you know, like, oh that's jesus face i can sell that for 200 dollars on ebay and that is a thing you can look it up um so we have like you know we have dedicated instinctive neurological processes running in our heads all the time which which are geared towards socialization we we do feel a genuine positive hit when someone is nice to us and we do feel a genuine sense of psychological pain when we are rejected in any circumstance it seems they've done some studies which show that you know this is a virtual game um uh, where the people throw a ball to each other and then the other two participants stop playing amongst themselves and they they reject the the subject and so it makes them experience rejection and the, the, the parts of the brain which process discomfort and pain and uncertainty, they tend to fire up when that happens, regardless of who it is who's rejecting you. It could be a complete stranger. And in some cases, 
They show that after Afri African American subjects feel pain when rejected by members of the Klan. I mean, you'd think the opposite would happen, but it's it's a deeply ingrained thing. So you know that's why you know, being, any sort of criticism, any sort of rejection, negative comment does tend to leave a mark. It does know the, the phrase "sticks and stones will break my bones, but names never hurt me" is is incorrect. We we are a very social creature. We're very sensitive to any sort of negative feedback from other people. So, but it, it, an interpersonal communication it engages far more of the brain than an online one because um, there's lots more to take in. Is the person's face, tone of voice, posture, body language, and it's all happening in real time. Of course, you can't. So, if someone asks you a question, you can't sit there for twenty minutes thinking of the perfect pithy response and then for <laughs> people to like and retweet. Um, believe me, I've tried. People just walk off eventually. They think you're weird. <laughs> um, but you know, it's a lot more demanding in the brain because you have to think in real time. You're always conscious of what you're saying, what you sound like. And social media, it sort of it takes away the the risks of an interpersonal. Cop interpersonal communication like you, you don't have to worry about what you look like you can take 50 selfies and find the one you like best you don't have to be well on the spot constantly thinking you can like i say you can prepare the perfect rejoinder the perfect pithy comment the perfect succinct tweet and put that out there so you know, we're, we're constantly we're really constantly looking our best to other people for getting people's approval and social media allows us to do that in a far more managed and uh, you know, controllable way. Again, control, another thing which reduces uncertainty, which we really like. And also it makes us, it gives us the ability to, to be liked and approved of by you know, countless people at once, as opposed to, you know, how, how, how many people can you realistically, realistically talk to at once? So even if you're doing a gig, like it's, you know, the audience of a certain size, you, you don't see people anymore, you just see a group of, a crowd. So, yeah, you know, you can have like a group of five friends, 10 friends, and you can have a, you know, a nice pub discussion, but, you got your Facebook account, you got your Twitter account, you've got thousands of people potentially who will be approving of you and saying, well done with that. So it does provide uh, you know, a more reliable hit, it does provide more of a regular hit, but it's not as qualitatively potent, I suppose. Like I think the the comparison I made is like social media interaction can be to the brain like like what refined sugar is to fruit, you know, it's uh, it's taking all the, taking the part you like out of like strawberries or you know, whatever fruit <laughs> you like, and just giving you that stuff. But you can't really survive on that for long periods. It'll rot your teeth. You know, it's it's, it's not meant. That's not meant to be how we how we work. So, I think um, you can. Social interaction is always going to be preferable to the to the brain. I mean, the interpersonal, physical. You're right in front of me. That's always going to be something which is more more enriching to the human brain, but it doesn't have to be um, just that. We, we can do without it. I think if you, long as you, if your online communications are, uh, you know, visual stuff is is probably quite a good idea. Video conferencing, you know, which is when I was a kid, that was a, a, it was a ludicrous future technology, but now it's just <laughs> on everyone's handset, which is great. Um, but yeah, I think like advice, do that more because someone seeing someone's face is a big part of communication. And seeing someone's body, like so many people are live streaming now, and it's it's nice. And I think get, get involved with that because it does, you know, those instinctive parts of your brain, they're not particularly fussy. You're like, oh, this is a this is a full person. You know, I, I've never met them before. I'm seeing what they're doing. I'm, I'm listening to their discussion and going back and forth between it. So yeah, I think it, it's not quite as good as a proper full-on physical proximity in conversation interaction, but it will fulfill the needs you have for social interaction if you embrace it. And I think that's one thing that there was a study a little while ago saying like, you know, does social media harm your mental health, particularly among teens or like 
looking at the the Instagram thing, you know, all these perfectly polished people and their lovely lives, and how does this impact mental health? Um, it can if you're a passive user. I think it was the conclusion in that if you're someone who just scrolls through everyone else's accounts, you know, wonderful their lives are because they are only putting forward the best image of themselves. It will make your mental health worse because you're aware of your own problems, but you don't see anyone else's. So it makes you feel like an outsider. It makes you feel like you've got something wrong with you. And that enhances stress, which leads to more further mental health um, deficits further down the line. And that's, that's bad. That's really bad. So that's why social media can cause mental health problems. But if you're an active user, if you reach out and say, hi, I've got this problem. Can someone help me with this? Or you see someone saying, I'm suffering with this. And you can say, oh, me too. That can seemingly be a... That seems to have a sort of protective effect in mental health. Like you, you might have no personal friends you can relate to, or your parents, and you might not get on. But you can reach out to some you know, sympathetic souls online and form a community there. And lots of people have done that, and that's like the positive side of it. And that, that I think, is what should be focused on here. Is and yes, it's not as good as having your regular friends who you see all the time, but for now, it'll do, and it'll 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 scratch that itch, it'll fulfil that need, and it'll keep you going. So. You know, embrace it. It's not the same, but it's 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 good. It's good to, to indulge in that. It's it's very funny how this is the first time in ages I've really gone. Oh, I'm really pleased I'm still on Twitter. It's the first time in very. <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> it took it took a it took this it took a global <laughs> pandemic, but finally I like Twitter again. Um, I wanted to ask: Is there something? Um, we'll, we'll get to a, a far more positive and perhaps positive advice in, in a second. But I just, well, in fact, this is positive advice, really, just maybe not for the listeners. Um. Are there better ways that the government could kind of be conveying things, uh, conveying what's happening um, that would make things less stressful or more reassuring for people? Are, are daily updates helpful? Is, uh, you know, I mean, Boris Johnson, it, when it all started, just said some of your loved ones will die and <laughs> immediately yeah. terrified a lot of people. Would there be tones they could use, words they could use? Is there, is there, you know, what what should they be doing to make us all feel maybe a bit, calmer about this <laughs> um firstly when you said like um is there anything the government could be doing to make people feel better all i could think of was the black Arrow goes forth exchange field marshal he is worried about morale amongst the men and what suggestions well sir there's resignation and suicide should do it but like that, that was the first thing that came to mind like yeah yeah they could be doing a better job let's be honest it's not been ideal um yeah so i mean Trying to put you know, partisan politics aside, I am not a fan of Boris Johnson. I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a right-wing voter. I never have been. It's like my great-grand would literally come back to life and slap me senseless if I ever was. So that's um, he was a staunch Labour. So, so that's you know, that's that's my you know, in the interest of transparency. That's where I come from on this. Um, it's it's a, it's a tricky one because you know this is an unprecedented situation. It is unknown and uncertain. And if I'm you know if if I have to think of reasons to praise Johnson's efforts and so on, that the, it did seem to be at least science-led from the beginning. Like There wasn't just a case of, don't worry about it, it's fine, carry on regardless. And you know, there was acknowledgement, like you said, some of your relatives will die. <laughs> that was, I mean, that could have been phrased a lot better, but it, it was a truthful statement, which is something unusual. That shouldn't be impressive for a prime minister, but <laughs> in this case it was. Oh, the bar is it, so low. <laughs> I know, yeah, it's really, really bleak, isn't it? But, but it's... um. It, yeah, so you know, it, it it should have grasped the situation earlier, but that's not how they do things. I mean, we have, I, I think I put a post about it, but we have a government now which has spent the last four to five years 
telling the entire population that negative consequences will not occur. There's nothing to worry about. Ignore the doomsayers, ignore all the evidence, ignore the experts. You'll be fine because you're British. That's That's been the general gist of this government. And the current prime minister is like the, the absolute ringmaster of that whole vibe, of that, that whole approach to things. So for them, him to them turn around and say, bad things are going to happen. You must do exactly as you're told. We're all very vulnerable. It, you know, it's very much... You reap what you sow when it comes to people not paying attention to that or not, um, you know, not not taking it seriously. When this is the guy who said, oh, "We'll have three hundred fifty million pounds a week," and actually, no, we won't. You know, why would anyone <laughs> believe anything he says, you know, in, in a serious manner? Um, and no, these are you know, like once again, you reap what you sow. If your chickens are coming home to roost. This is what happens when you feed a population a diet of absolute nonsense for the best part of a decade and then expect them to take you very seriously at a moment's notice. So, you know, the, the government was kind of hamstring both by the situation and by their own previous efforts. But I do agree with many people who say that there's a lot more clarity that's needed. I mean, I know you don't want to panic people. That's that's a bad thing. Like people panic by in insofar as that was a problem, not the the supply setup of supermarkets in, in early spring. That is going to be something you have to take into account. Because people, when they panic, are dangerous. You know, like they are, you know, Panic disorder and mass panic is known in the literature to have very negative effects. I mean, some, some people point out like the Salem witch trials were the result of mass panic in isolated communities when a lot of people died as a result of that. So you want to avoid that. These things are, have to be taken into account when you do your planning and modeling. Mm. Though a full-on blunt assessment on the situation perhaps isn't the best way to go. But like I say, on the other hand, people will, you know, it's an uncertain situation. The more certainty you can, certainty you can offer will be far more reassuring, far more you know, uh, soothing and stuff. And it seems like Johnson and Co. really were reluctant to do that. As in, like, hey, please don't go out. I'll, I'll uh, probably shouldn't. You know, it's all maybes. It's all, uh, it would be helpful if you didn't. Not, you don't have to. Not, um, don't do this. No, like, now we have that as well. It's been now, like, the, the rules are uncertain. So, yeah, I think it would have been a lot more helpful if the government was clearer sooner. And for all, like, you know, it may, may have cost them political points, it may still do so, but we needed firmer restrictions and firmer guidelines, and we need to be a bit more heavy-handed with, this is important, this is real, do not go outside, do not socialise, do not fraternise. And that's not something that happened, and I think we we're going to lose a lot of people as a result of that. And that's you no know, grim, but you know, it's it's the situation it is. I mean, what would I have done in their situation? I don't know. I really have no idea, so... I can only criticise so much and say, well, what would anyone have done? You should follow everyone else's lead because other countries are doing something different. But Britain's a different country. Britain's a different place, a different culture, a different population. As the last few years have made very clear. So, yeah, so it's a difficult job. They could have done it better. But, uh, you know, if I had to say exactly how they would have done that, I would probably wouldn't draw a blank. But I wouldn't be able to give you any certainty myself, which is what I'm criticising them for. So perhaps I should just stop talking. <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly the same boat i i would have been awful i would have, I would have come out in a hazmat suit and just said <laughs> yeah. we're all gonna die and then ran into a cupboard or something it'd be terrible or a um, fridge maybe it's, it's maybe a fridge actually would have been far more appropriate yes exactly yeah. exactly um well on, on a, a more positive note i suppose we, we are we are in this situation now we are stuck at home people listening to this will be uh stuck in their various places um what sh- what can we be doing to make ourselves feel better and happier and perhaps less stressed about this situation are there things that we can change about our home or or i don't know what what i mean you recommended earlier that people get on social you know get online and talk Hmm. to others is there other other things that we can do other practical things um 
it's a, it's a tricky one to sort of give any sort of firm advice here because everyone is different, and that's something which I I keep I keep banging that drum a lot. But as someone who comes from like a neuroscience background and sees so many books about self help and self care and like this is how to change your life, which assume that everyone will react in the exact same way to this particular bit of advice. I'm quite opposed to that because I know each individual human is as unique as can possibly be in terms of how they feel, how they think, how they react, how they've developed, how, they've, how they're going to develop, how they approach, approach life and so on. So uh, with that caveat of uh, there's no easy answer or which will work for everyone, I'd say, well, one thing I've seen a lot uh, in the situation is people feeling like even more stressed because they're not living up to the expectations of what they should be doing. Like I've seen mothers saying, I'm fine enough. Didn't homeschool the kids enough today. I feel so awful. I feel stressed, or I haven't done anything anywhere near enough, you know, housework or or things like that. And this is an unhelpful approach. Like the idea that you are at home now and therefore you have to do loads of other stuff. This is a completely new scenario. No one knows how this is meant to work or this is how this is meant to go. There's no way to do this wrong yet. I think it's important to recognize that, to say, like, you know, well, what do we do in this situation? Nobody knows. Anyone who's telling you, you have to do this, X, Y, Z, they're just making it up themselves. Odds are they're scared, they're a bit paranoid, and trying to exert control over others is how they're coping with it. Their own mechanism, I guess you can't fault them for that, but it's not helpful to keep telling people, this is what you should have done by now. You should have had, like, a five-point plan every morning. Kids have a healthy, balanced breakfast, and then 20 minutes of exercise, 20 minutes of work, 20 minutes of exercise, repoint the house, like, do all the garden, and, like, this idea that... If you add, you know, <coughs> just add in more expectations to the situation, which are difficult to live up to, isn't helpful. That's not, and it's also, you know, you don't know that's the right way to do things because this is unprecedented. So it's important to keep that in mind to sort of think, well, I'm, you know, this is the situation is happening. Accept it. You know, say, well, this is happening. What do I do about it? Not much you can do about it. We just got to wait it out. But there's no wrong way to do this right now. You've got to do whatever fit suits you best. If your kids don't want to be homeschooled and you don't want to do it, then you're going to end up, everyone's being forced to do something which nobody likes and you've got to spend the next like 12 weeks together. That's not a good move. You know, if, it makes, if it makes you feel better, it makes you happier, if it's taking the stress off, it's a good idea right now, whatever it is, with the exception of you know, class A drugs or <laughs> rampant alcoholism. <laughs> you know, those will add more problems further down the line. But you know, if you found something which helps you cope, which helps you get through it, and it's only been a week, if that, at the moment. So you you can give yourself some slack. You know, this you are some sort of superhuman. This is a weird situation. Everyone's trying to figure it out themselves. You do what's right for you right now, and don't let anyone tell you it's wrong because it's not. There's no way to know that. No one knows what what you should be doing right now. So do whatever feels right. You know, you don't like better than anyone. Um. So like that's just you know, in the short term of how to cope with all this sort of stuff. Um. Anything which gives you a sense of control will sort of reduce stress. So I, I know I said, like, you know, tell you you have to do specific routines. That's, that's, not, that's not essential. But if you can work out a routine, that'll add some structure back to your life where it's recently been lost. So that's probably a good idea. That'll add some structure to your life where it's currently been lost. So that's probably a good idea. Uh, but structure with flexibility. Like if you say, like, well, I'm going to exercise at 9 o'clock every morning with Joe Wicks and YouTube, then great. But if you don't want to do it one morning, that's fine too. That's, you know, <laughs> no one's judging you. No one's... No one's like keeping tabs on you at the moment. That's fine. Um, and also like things like, you know, um, things that yeah, would keep you busy, keep you motivated. It's always, it, it seems to be an instinctive uh, inherent thing in the brain. It's always easier to be motivated to do something intrinsic rather than extrinsic. All that means is things which motivate us more come from inside rather than outside. So if like, if you 
want to be a doctor, for example, because you want to help people, you want to cure the sick, and you want to make the world a better place, you can be far more motivated to do all that than someone who wants to be a doctor because the, because the pay is good. That means that an outside agency is like is providing the reward of it. So you know, I'll do a do- I'll do medicine because they'll pay me good money for it. If they stop paying me money, I won't do it anymore. And there's no real sort of emotional investment in it. So if you can find something you want to do rather than something you feel you should do, like when everyone else is doing their garden, I have to do the garden now. I don't want to do the garden, but I feel like I have to. That's an extrinsic uh, motivation, and that's not going to really be lasting. It's going to make you feel probably worse, maybe. But if it's um, if it's uh, what you call it, uh, if something like, well, I've you know, I've always wanted to finish my book collection. I've always wanted to repaint the attic. You know, that's something I I, I, I really want to do. That then do that. Do the things you want to do rather than the things you think everyone else is doing or things that you should be doing because those are going to be far more um, far more lasting, far more motivational, far more reassuring to you and give you a better sense of control because they're your desires, your wishes, your your drive to do them rather than things that are imposed on you from the outside. So that would be some general bit of advice there for people finding this situation rather, rather anxiety-inducing. Yeah, that's really that's really very helpful. Really, very. Helpful. I, I, it's funny that I sort of thought, well, everything's stopped now. Maybe I can get a bit of a breather. But actually, because everyone's working from home, they respond to emails quicker than ever before, which <laughs> God, is yeah. thoroughly annoying. Um, so, thank you so much uh, for your time today, Dean. And and one last question, which is something that I ask all the guests uh, on this podcast, um, which is just that apart from yourself and your Twitter and your books, who should listeners check out in terms of people or campaigns or sites? Um, for issues regarding, well, mental health, but also how to cope at the moment. You know, who are your places and people that you go to for info? Um, the charity I'm ambassador for is uh, Rethink, um, one of their sort of high-profile uh, spokespeople. Um, they want to, like, we're actively trying to change the perception of mental health in the wider world. And I imagine this might be a, a bit of a useful time for them when everyone's suddenly realising how easy it is to become anxious, become stressed and stuff. So Rethink, I tend to throw attention their way if I get a chance. Um, individuals, uh, Dr. Petra Boynton, she's the uh, go-to, like, uh, agony aunt for the Telegraph sometimes, and she does a lot of work online for, like, working parents and academics who... Uh, it's very, she's a very qualified psychologist who will provide you know, insight about mental health and the impacts of parenting and relationships and stuff, so she's usually a good one to check out. Um uh, person like uh, um, Aaron Gillies is really good. His books and his work on Dave. Uh, Twitter's at technically Ron. He's that guy. He, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when, when you look at him, it was oh yeah, that guy. He's, he's one of those. You know? <laughs> he's that guy who keeps popping up everywhere on with his various tweets and Photoshop antics. Uh, but yeah, he's written some books about the experience of mental health from a personal perspective, and that's those are quite those are really good, and they're quite obviously funny and punchy because he's a Twitter legend and. So those are some suggestions to check out while you've got the time and scope to do so. Fantastic, which is right now. Right now, everyone has exactly. the time and scope to do so right now. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks tons to Dean for the chat. Uh, you can find Dean on Twitter at uh, G-A-R-W boy. I can't work out how to pronounce that. I have tried. And on his website, Dean Burnett, that's two T's dot com, where you can find links to all his articles and his books. They're Idiot Brain, The Happy Brain and Brain Yapping. Um, Dean is also taking part in a lot of the Cosmic Shambles live streaming shows alongside Robin Ince, Brian Cox, Josie Long and many, many others. So keep an eye out on their website at CosmicShambles.com for when he's next appearing on there. 
What else do you need while you're stuck at home? Do you have time to listen to long interviews while juggling children, work, fighting people for toilet roll and watching all the endless content everyone is making in a desperate bid to burn themselves out while still at home? Well, if you do, then let me know what sort of stuff might help right now. Uh, do you want coronavirus related stuff or anything but new political ideas, old ones, global stuff or just someone nice to chat to? Drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can spend £5.8 million sending a letter to every home in the goodwill gesture that either I read it before putting it in recycling or you can at least aid people with their lack of loo roll. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for listening with your ear holes. Uh, and as you've all listened to the end this week, like Team Ende, that's uh, end in German. That is That, that could work, couldn't it? Or uh, what is it in Norwegian? Team Slut. Okay, maybe maybe not that one. Um, okay, look, anyway, you're here. So here is your special bit of political gossip. As Jeremy Corbyn steps down as Labour leader this week, uh, did you know that the Labour leader that he's often compared to uh, from 1980 to 1983, Michael Foote, was taller than his name suggests? Uh, no, I don't know exactly how tall uh, the internet hasn't really helped, but I'm guessing he's at least five to six feet big. So he should have been called Michael Foot, 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 or at least Michael Feet. Uh, it's pretty dishonest of him, really, to pretend he's just a foot. Anyway... I hope that's useful for any of the pub quizzes you won't be doing. And of course, if any of you enjoy this show and not just the hot, hot facts at the end, then please do tell others to give it a whiz. Review it on any of them podcast apps, what you use that do that, but mainly Apple Podcasts, please. And donate to the Kofi or Patreon if you can, as it is hella helpful right now. Big chunky cheers is to Acast for hosting the show, my brother the last sceptic for musical bings and bongs, Cat Day for typing up all the linear liner notes every week, and Mushy Bees for brilliant art doings. This will be back next week when Dominic Raab, in his short time as acting Prime Minister, has somehow managed to start a war on Wakanda. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Safe Builders Incorporated. If you need construction work done in these uncertain times of social distancing, employ us to only place bricks two metres away from each other and build roofs with massive fuck-off gaps in them in order to avoid spreading disease. We are experts at lobbing cements, pneumatic drills and brick hods at each other with only minor fatalities. Safe Builders Inc. for when the last thing you want to build on is an infection rate or your property. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.